0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, the hardest people to respond to online sometimes are the mind readers, the people who are absolutely certain that they know X, Y, or Z. And then how do you respond to that? And by the way, uh, happy Martin Luther King Day. I'm going to do a short uh, podcast today. I've got some reporting that I want to share with you and catch up on some important stories. Um, But I was just so struck, you know, I look at the comments on Twitter and Facebook after Media Buzz, which I hope you had a chance to see yesterday. And if you did not, uh, many of the segments are available. We'll talk about that a little bit as we unravel the uh, thought process here. Um. So one person says, you know, of course, Merrick Garland told Joe Biden in advance about, you know, the special counsel, or the special counsel for Trump. So how does somebody just sitting in their kitchen or their basement know this? And then you get into like, you're such an idiot that you don't know this, but it's something that, you know, in fact, I think. Garland and Biden have been extraordinarily careful, knowing that they might have to, you know, give depositions one day not to provide any advance notice to the president uh, because the president ran against the politicization of the Justice Department. With Donald Trump, there was no guessing. He would come out and do it publicly on Twitter. You know, Bill Barr wrote about this in his book. He would say, you know, he would openly say that the Justice Department was being unfair to people who are his political allies uh, or was um, not being fair. Uh, to others, unfair to his political allies, and should go after his political opponents, is what I meant to say. Uh, so, um, by the way, some of you were disappointed yesterday that the last, uh, you know, 15 minutes or so of media buzz was devoted to President Biden speaking at MLK's old church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Um, look, I, these things happen, and actually, we're very lucky because we got most of the show in. Originally, Biden was supposed to speak at 11 Eastern, which is when my show starts on Sunday mornings. And then it got pushed back. It was going to be about 1120, and then it's going to be about 1130. And, you know, there's a whole lot of behind the scenes contingency planning. Okay, well, if we start now, can we run this uh, package? Uh, Do I have time to get to this? Should we just wait? Um, Because, you know, the uncertainty of you don't want to start something brand new and 30 seconds later have to interrupt to go to the president speaking. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a particularly newsworthy speech, but it was a speech in which he, um, you know, paid tribute to the legacy of Martin Luther King, said MLK was one of his two personal heroes, the other one being Bobby Kennedy. Um, but anyway, we, we got most of our segments in and I was grateful for that, that sometimes it's just the luck of the draw. Um, interestingly, because you'll remember last week, a week ago, um, I interviewed Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I had a lot of people, including, you know, people my personal life, why would you sit down with her? And she said all these outrageous things. And the Washington Post over this past weekend had a big spread on her saying essentially what I call strange new respect, explaining uh, that although Marjorie Taylor Greene said a lot of crazy things and did a lot of crazy things when she was first running for Congress and came to Congress and, you know, as I asked her in our interview about, you know, getting sucked into some of these QAnon conspiracy theories, but that she had then changed her strategy and became an ally of Kevin McCarthy, helping him become speaker, realizing that, you know, in Washington it comes down to the bath. You can be the greatest, have the greatest Instagram feed of all time, but if you can't put together a coalition Uh, you don't get anything done in D.C. It's just the cold, hard calculation of it. So I thought it was a good piece for the Post to do. It covered a lot of the ground that my interview did. I was waiting to see the reference to it. Not that I broke this story, but the point is that, you know, she had addressed some of these things on camera. Now, speaking of Kevin McCarthy, did some reporting over the weekend. Uh, You know, I know it seems like a long time ago now, but it was only a little more than a week ago that Kevin McCarthy won the speakership on the 15th ballot. And the insight that I have now is that essentially his opponents wanted to humiliate him to the point where he would start to lose supporters and there'd be a momentum shift. And this goes to a key thing in politics, which is why I think I could never be a politician, which is you have to have a certain amount of, this is going to sound like uh, something negative, but I'm not in this context meaning it that way. You have to have a certain amount of shamelessness and a certain amount of um, a a thicker skin than most of us can possibly imagine. Because what was happening was when McCarthy was losing, on the first ballot, on the fourth ballot, on the eighth ballot, on the tenth ballot, you know, the media people would come on and they would say, this is horrible. This guy can't nail it down. This is humiliating. He should drop out. He's going to drop out. I played some of those predictions on the air. And all McCarthy had to do really was hang on and hold his base. Because as I talked about at the time, and so he knew that that was his opponent's strategy. um, To make him give up. to, 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 To beat him down. On the other hand, he had the support of 95% of the Republican caucus. He just didn't have these 20 holdouts that were uh, stopping him from reaching that magic number of 218. So he just figured, you know, if I can just hold my support, there's not anybody that the other side has who can beat me. And so the media sort of didn't see it. It was like, oh, my God, how much more of this can Kevin McCarthy take? But he was confident that he could hold on. Now, in order to do that, he had to stop defections. So he had about 200 Republicans supporting him for speaker. Now, that's well short of 218. If he had started to lose some of that, I am told, you know, there could have been a momentum shift. The other thing that the opponents did, rather than just picking one or two people to try to beat McCarthy with, they kept changing who they were voting for. At one point, Matt Gaetz said he, he nominated Donald Trump to be Speaker of the House because you don't have to even be a member uh, of Congress. Uh, then there was uh, Byron Donalds, who is an impressive black congressman who I was not familiar with, uh, who was a McCarthy supporter, and suddenly his name is up there. So once they started putting up different names, uh, I think it became pretty apparent they didn't have a winning strategy. Because the only way to beat McCarthy would be to coalesce around one person, you know, preferably with a national reputation. So all McCarthy had to do was really tough it out because there just wasn't anybody on the Republican side. But now it would have played out differently if a few of the, if he had not been able to turn some of those 20 holdouts or if instead of having 200, then it went down to 197 and then it was 192. When somebody is, starts to hemorrhage support, even if it's just a relative handful, then it's sort of like sharks and there's blood in the water. But that did not happen. And that's why he's the speaker today. Uh, and that's why we spent some time on the show talking about um, him kicking Eric Swallow off the intel committee, um, targeting the IRS, that money for the alleged 87,000 IRS agents, which the Biden administration insists is not true, and all that. So we, we covered a lot of ground, and I was pleased about that. Uh, you know, another thing I did some reporting on were, uh, it has to do with the GMA anchors. GMA 3 is it called, the third hour. So if you haven't been breathlessly following this, uh, TJ Holmes and Amy Roback, very popular co anchors of that third hour. And then along comes British Tabloid, says they're in a romance. They actually. They made a mistake by not coming clean with their bosses earlier on, but ABC's news president said they didn't violate any company policy. They were in the process of getting divorced from their spouses. And I think one of those divorces have come through and one may not. I'm not not sure of that. In any event, the news that I have is that they are not coming back to that show. And the question is why, if they hadn't violated any company policy? Well, when um, ABC benched the couple in December – what was the explanation was, well, it's a distraction and we just need time to figure this out. So I guess they figured out that if they come back at any time, it's a distraction. So what's happened is they've been told they're not coming back. They have both hired lawyers. All this is going to end up in one big negotiated settlement because, you know, um, you don't just take somebody out of their job at that level in network TV without some kind of compensation. I am further told that ABC is interested in having Amy Robach come to some other show on the network, but not GMA3, but is less interested in having T.J. Holmes come back at all, because in his case, there was an earlier workplace affair. Before he was involved with Amy Robach. he was involved with somebody else who was like a producer at ABC, and I guess that has soured the network. So uh, it looks like it's all over, except the lawyers get to make a lot of money figuring out. Uh, who gets what. And, you know, I've said from the beginning, I thought they're getting kind of a bum rap. Um, But there's a lot of money at stake in these franchises. I mean, one of the reasons this has attracted a lot of attention is that GMA3 makes a lot of money for ABC. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news, twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. All right, now the thing you all want to talk about and that I want to talk about is Biden and the documents and the special counsel and all that. Uh, It has been an absolute mess. An absolute friggin' mess. And I spent a lot of time, I did an interview with Peter Ducey, in which I said to him, what made you think when he was shouting the question uh, at a Biden event to say, Mr. President, you kept these documents next to your Corvette? What were you thinking? And Peter said that, you know, he had, they had found out just about five or 10 minutes before that one of the places where the classified documents from Biden's days as VP had turned up, was his garage in his Wilmington house. And he somehow remembered, there actually was a campaign ad about this, that that was where he parked this car. And so I got a picture of the car, and, I, and, and he said it just popped in his head, and of course it became synonymous with sloppiness, I guess, is the kindest word that you can use. Because, you know, the garage door is opening all the time, right? Uh, Biden kind of bristled and said, well, you know, I mean, the, the Corvette is in a locked garage it's not like it's out on the street this is a 1967 Corvette Stingray that I guess Biden uh, greatly cherishes now what was fascinating to me, I think this the press is so angry at Biden and the Biden team and the handling of this right now and I think I was able to show that with the sound that we found because initially the press's instinct was to say, you know what, this is just a small thing. I mean, yeah, a few papers were found, but, uh, this, you know, they, they, they voluntarily turned it over. You know, the Biden lawyers found it and they cooperating and there's nothing to see here. And this is not like Donald Trump. I mean, this is so far different than Donald Trump. And one of the, uh, sound bites I used was actually said, I think last Thursday or so, Thursday, Friday, which Mika Brzezinski said, you know, it wasn't great what Biden had done, but on the other hand, it was it was, it was apples and oranges, because the Trump situation was so much worse. And I said at the top of the show, of course, because with Donald Trump, you had a subpoena battle, you had him insisting that the documents were his, that he had somehow de- magically declassified them, uh, and then you had the raid on Mar-a-Lago. And a lot of these people are, why isn't Biden's house been raided? Well, because the FBI didn't know that he had any documents, but the Biden team turned them over, but. What made the reporters really angry, I mean angry and aggressive and even hostile, was the fact that they they were hosed. They were fed bad information. The Biden team, you know, even if it turns out that Joe Biden never touched these documents, the Biden team found out about this in early November, six days to be precise before the midterms, and didn't make it public and has not been able to offer any explanation as to why that is, other than to hide the political embarrassment. And then you have, you know, it's said that they, they came forward on their own, but the first batch of documents, which were found in that Penn Biden Center, where he's got that or had that office he used occasionally with the University of Pennsylvania in here in Washington, that story was broken by CBS. And then... Another story about more documents at his Wilmington residence was broken by NBC. So it isn't like they've been forthcoming about any of this. And then they keep, you know, I'm preparing for the show over the weekend. We know of three different places where classified documents from Biden's vice presidential days were found. And... Then comes a the fourth one. Oh, there's another one here. We forgot. Oh, how did we miss this? You can't do that. So on Morning Joe, this morning, Scarborough says, by stumbling and bumbling around, not getting their timeline right, by still saying, an unknown number of documents found in Biden's garage, no more unknowns. At this stage, we're two months in. They need to clean this up. They need to get, you know, amateur hours over. They need complete transparency. They just mishandled it from day one, and I'm only saying it because it's true. He's absolutely positively uh, right about that. Um, And even these additional pages in the Delaware home, bringing the tally to six, I'm looking here at a story that ran over the weekend. They defended their decision not to be fully forthcoming about the matter. Oh, how did they defend that? The White House has been criticized over its public disclosures. Um, Oh, so Biden's personal lawyer, Bob Bauer, put out a statement over the weekend saying the Biden legal team was trying to balance being transparent, there'd been anything but, with the established norms and limitations necessary to protect the investigation's integrity. So translated into non-lawyer speak, that means they don't want to piss off DOJ. But you know what? You're pissing off DOJ now because you keep changing the story. There's also nothing to prevent. You know, everybody's Beating up on Karine Jean Pierre. And I think she did an awful job of handling this because she just was robotic and saying the same thing again and again. But the White House was unfair to her. They sent her out with nothing. As we actually did a count 13 times, she said there was an ongoing process meeting. I can't comment because there's an investigation. At least 18 times, Karine Jean Pierre uh, said uh, that I would refer you to the White House counsel's office or I would refer you to the Justice Department, knowing full well that they're not talking at all. So it's just another way of saying no comment. But on the other hand, they sent her out with nothing. And they should have had Richard Salber or Bob Bauer or somebody come out and answer some basic questions. And this business is about, oh, we can't possibly, you know, they can do whatever they want. Joe Biden's the president of the United States. He could personally go in the briefing room and say, look, this was sloppy. I regret the way it was handled. However, we are fully cooperating. Now, let me tell you what's in these documents. I had somebody look at them, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera doesn't mean, I'm not convinced that legally this is going to lead to, you know, any charges against President Biden, even leaving aside the Justice Department, I guess you would call it a finding or tradition that you can't charge an incumbent president. You can't indict an incumbent president. This obviously came up in the last administration. Um, But right now, it's Keystone Cops, you know. Oh, here's another batch. Oh, we don't know where it's from. And so I used the clips to show how then you had CBS's Ed O'Keefe and NBC's Kristen Welker just hammering uh, Jean-Pierre at, at, at for not being able to answer basic questions. And she kept saying, we're being transparent. And she said, and the other reporter said, no, you're not. And Peter Ducey said, what are you hiding? You let Joe Biden read a statement, you know, that at best was misleading. Who drafted that statement? There's a lot we don't know. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. So the other thing I want to touch on here during this uh, holiday edition is George Santos, because it is just an amazing story. I mean, I want the movie rights to this story. I haven't figured out who will play Santos yet, but wow. And for all the, talk about drip, drip, drip. I mean, and this guy is, you know, being chased down corridors by reporters who are saying, well, you resign. And the fact is, he doesn't have to resign. Kevin McCarthy is not going to force him to resign. I don't know that he could. He won the election. But as Liz Clayman said on my show, Santos won the election with a based on a fabricated version of himself. There's an interesting media angle here, too, that I'll get into in a second. And Molly Hemingway said, yeah, he's a, he's a pathological liar. Uh, but she said, well, why is this getting so, atten- so much attention? Because this is just some obscure guy no one ever heard of. And that's true. I never heard of him either. But the New York Times dropped this bomb over the weekend, which is Santos, when he was making his run for Congress last year, second run for the seat in Long Island, um, allowed a self-opo study, you know, one of these vulnerability studies where the campaign tries to figure out, well, what, what's out there that the other side could use against us? And they found out that he had made up much of his biography, that he didn't go to Brook College, where he comically claimed to one of the Long Island Republican officials who now wants him to quit, that he had been a star volleyball player. Like, it's not enough that he didn't go to the school. He had to be a star athlete there. Um, Anyway, they tried to talk him into not running. And he kept insisting, oh, it's not that bad, and he insisted on running. Several of the campaign staff members quit because they knew what was going to happen. Others tried to interest higher up people in the Republican Party saying, look, this is a ticking time bomb. This guy is running on a false resume. He didn't work on Wall Street. He's not Jew-ish, you know, and on and on and on, not knowing this would ever become a national story. So the New York Times finds that even finds that Robert Zimmerman, who was a Democratic opponent and who was a Fox News contributor, and I said, you know, because there was this one Long Island paper that had some pretty tough facts about Santos's financial shenanigans, which we'll get into in, in a second. Well, it turns out that Zimmerman did try. He got a hold of this research book somehow. He could have spent more money. You know, I don't really think it cost that much money. I really don't. It's a few phone calls. You call the school. Did he attend there? You call Goldman Sachs. Any record of him working there? But leaving that aside, he tried to interest reporters and he got a lot of like, sorry, I'm too busy. And this speaks to, here. here's Zimmerman being quoted by the Times. We knew a lot about him did not add up. We were very conscious of that, but we didn't have the resources as a campaign to do the kind of digging that needed to be done. Now, the thing is, And then here's the North Shore leader run by a Republican lawyer. So it's a suspect source, but calling him a fabulous and a fake, you know, with actual details to back it up. But here's the thing. When Zimmerman or anybody else goes to reporters and says, hey, uh, you ought to look at this guy because he's a fraud. He's a fake. um, It speaks to the decimation of local journalism. Because most local newsrooms have been kind of hollowed out, bought by chains, and they, you know, they, they're trying to cover a whole bunch of races. This was not a pro- high-profile race. George Santos was not a known guy. He was not expected to win. And now, of course, it's this national soap opera. But it really did. You know, All it would have taken was one more reporter to spend a day or two looking into this, writing an article that maybe, you know, then the New York Times would have reacted uh, sooner rather than after he had already won election. So, you know, there were emergency conference calls. It turns out a bunch of people knew about this. And, you know, I don't see how, it's hard for me to see how Santos survives. So here's a Washington Post piece about this company Harbor City Capital. And the reason I bring this up is the following. Harbor City Capital is a company based in Florida that George Santos was involved in. A few weeks after he left, the Security Exchange Commission said it was a Ponzi scheme, a classic Ponzi scheme that defrauded millions of dollars from investors. And there's court records on this, and there are Zoom calls examined by the Washington Post. And it shows how Santos was involved as a player with this gang. Um, and when the company had to shut down because of that SEC finding, after collecting a total of $17 million for more than 100 people, Santos then joined with other people from that company in creating other businesses and so forth. Okay, that's great. But what about the fraud? Now, he hasn't been charged with knowledge of the fraud, um, so it's not fair to hold him accountable for that. But the guy who founded Harbor City, a guy by the name of J.P. Moroni, and who hired Santos, there are podcasts and YouTube videos in which he said he has found ways to generate... Lots of uh, online sales, and it's a great investment. And you could, you could get a return of uh, in double digits. You could make 18%. So he's telling this to these unsuspecting investors who ended up losing their money. And according to the SEC, this guy Moroni siphoned off about $4.5 million, more than a quarter of his money raised, for his own personal use, including to buy a Mercedes-Benz, a waterfront home near Cape Canaveral, Six bedrooms, eight bathrooms, 13,000-square-foot mansion. The location for a 2020 fundraiser uh, supposedly to benefit President Trump, according to a planning document. And Santos was listed as a contact on that document. Now, look, it's entirely possible... Oh, and apparently the event took place. Donald Trump Jr. was there. Kimberly Guilford was there. Uh, Look, maybe this guy just stumbled through life and didn't know anything about it. However we have this $700,000 loan that a guy who is having trouble making ends meet, who doesn't declare much income on his forms, um, somehow is able to then, has enough wealth to loan his house campaign 700 k This is why, I mean, as I say, it's a great movie. It's also kind of a sad story. And, you know, basically, after having admitted in the wake of the initial New York Times piece having fabricated his resume, he's just not answering questions. His lawyer doesn't answer questions. He's just trying to tough it out. But there's a bunch of investigations going on. There'll be an ethics committee investigation, so we'll see where it leads. But these stories tend to move pretty quickly and they sometimes get kind of complicated. Um, so I don't know. Who should pay George Santos for the movie? Look, maybe he um, pulls it out goes on to become, uh, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And by the way, Santos isn't the only name he used. He has this other name, Devalder. Anyway, I try to keep an eye on all this so you don't have to. I hope you have a great day if you don't have to work today. Regardless, I hope you've had a good weekend. Again, uh, all the Media Buzz segments about Santos, about the Biden special counsel, Robert Herr, about the bungling of the documents by the president's team, um, and some other things are out there for your perusal. We're back here tomorrow, regular workday, with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.